Hey, good evening. Good to see some familiar faces and some new faces out there. We're going to pick up where we left off in the book of 1 Peter. But first, I'm curious, not going to have you raise your hand. If you had a chance to go out today, find 15 minutes and read the book of 1 Peter. Any quick observations that jumped out to you that you would just kind of quickly share with the group? Like I noticed this was repeated or I never understood this about Peter, or even just one or two. Anybody have something jump out for you from the book of 1 Peter if you had a chance to read it? Everybody's looking down. Makes me mildly nervous. All right. Anybody? Okay, if you didn't get a chance to read it, or you read it and it didn't stick, I'm going to ask this again tomorrow. Find 15 minutes, read the book, and just see if there's some nugget or some insight that jumps out to you you could share with the group. Now, we made it through verse the first 17 verses in 1 Peter, so just because we're aiming for a 30,000-foot view approach, let's kind of quickly summarize what we covered, all right? So... Apostle Peter writing to these churches in modern-day Turkey. And they're undergoing some suffering and hostility from the culture in which they live. And so what is Peter doing? He's writing to them, trying to get them to reframe their thinking from focusing on the temporary suffering to what is eternal and unfading and permanent in heaven— Because Jesus died on the cross, and they've experienced forgiveness. So Peter's trying to say, let's reframe and let's rethink, and when we do that, then we can approach suffering differently. That's what we've covered so far in in Peter. Now, why can we have confidence in the hope? Because why? Because Jesus has risen from the grave. That's why our hope is not in vain. And then Peter goes on, the verses right before. He says in verse 30, 13, kind of like Paul says in Romans chapter 12, to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed to rethink and then ultimately to be obedient. And in the last verse we looked at, uh, this is kind of in some ways the heart of this book. In verse 15, it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter's trying to motivate them to good Christian conduct. The first thing he tells them, he says, God is holy. Because God is good, because God is holy, because of God's character, we should want to imitate him. That's the basis of Christian ethics. The basis of Christian ethics is not ultimately because the Bible said so. That can become legalistic if we divorce the Bible from the God who stands behind it and who wants to be in relationship with us. So the first motivation for ethics is that God is holy. But then Peter gives us a second one. We're in chapter 1, verse 17. So actually we made it through 16 verses, didn't we? Technically. So verse 17, he gives a second motivation for living righteously. He says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds. Now, what is he doing? He calls him father, so there's this fatherly affection and love, but he also calls him what? Calls him judge. 
Now, we lose both of these sometimes in our culture today, don't we? Sometimes, or more so within the church. Sometimes God is just Father, and He's loving, and we lose the wrath and the holiness and the judgment of God. On the other hand, some of us are very good at the wrath and judgment and holiness of God, and we miss that God is also Father. The biblical writers are able to keep this intention. They can both be true at the same time. So part of Peter's motivation to be holy is because God is going to judge us someday. <laughs> that shouldn't be our only motivation. But according to Peter, this should be a part of our motivation, that God is judged. There should be a holy fear because of this. He says, on him is Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, by the way, there's an important distinction here that we should make between some of the writings of Paul and the writings of Peter. When we talk about salvation, there's really three ways we can talk about salvation. So, for example, we have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. What do we call that, by the way? Justification. Good. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Now, we are being saved from the power of sin. What do we call that? Sanctification. We will be saved from the presence of sin. What do we call that? Good. Glorification. All three of those are a piece of the larger focus of salvation. Now, in Paul's writings like Galatians and Romans, which of those three does he seem to primarily focus on? Which one? More so justification. You are not saved by works. You're saved by grace. Paul makes that super clear. Ephesians chapter 2. All over the book of Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2. When he says God who judges impartially according to our deeds, he's not talking about us and our salvation based on works. That's not what Peter is talking about. Okay, He's talking more about God's discipline of us and possibly our future judgment, which Christians will undergo, which is not a matter of salvation or not, but there is a kind of judgment, as we read in Revelation, based on our works in this life. So if we read Paul into Peter, we will miss and think that he's preaching a works-based judgment, but he's not. But he does say that God will judge us based on our works. But what word does he use to describe it? Impartial. In fact, as I was looking at a couple commentaries, one of the explanations is that God judges without favoritism. Now, I could give a whole talk on this, and I won't. It's a conversation my wife and I have been having recently. Is I've been meaning to write this blog, and I'm going to call it How to Wreck a Family, a Church, or a Team. And, the, and Because everyone's like, wait a minute. I want to know how to build it, not how to wreck it. And the best way to wreck it is to show favorites favoritism. Just go back to the book of Genesis and think how many stories in Genesis is the tragedy as a result of favoritism. So let's start at the beginning. Why did Cain kill Abel? He was jealous. He thought God was showing favoritism to Abel instead of Cain. Skip forward to Rachel and Leah. What did Rachel feel like? 
or I'm sorry, Leah felt like favoritism was being played to Rachel. How about Jacob and Esau? The mother favors Rachel. The father favors uh, Jacob. How about Joseph? What happened with Joseph? What did the brothers think? They thought the father was playing favoritism. I, I don't know if anyone's done this, an entire study of the Bible just looking at the role of favoritism and how destructive favoritism can be. Here we're told that God does not show favorites. God judges impartially. But with that said, we should fear God's judgment. In fact, that's the very next verse. Not only says, as him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, this is strange because the Bible has a lot to say about do not fear, but here it says to fear. So sometimes if you were a skeptic and decided you want to find contradictions in the Bible, you could say a passage that says fear, others that say do not fear and say the Bible contradicts. But of course, what really matters is the context. So we're not supposed to fear in one sense, but we are supposed to fear in another sense. So 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out fear. When fear gets in the way of loving our neighbor, we cast it out by love. But that's not what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about fear of what? Fear of God's judgment. And that's not popular today. That's not going to build a church. But Peter's saying we should fear God's judgment. In fact, what's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I would say this is a sense of awe. It's a sense of respect. It's a sense of understanding that God is the creator and I am not. That kind of, not like scary fear, like you see a shark kind of fear. Some people think that. No, it's the sense of, wow, God is holy. And I am a sinner in, in the presence of a holy God. God can and will judge me, should motivate our actions towards holiness. So remember, here's Peter trying to motivate, and we'll get into this in a little bit. He's trying to motivate the Christians at this time to suffer well. And a part of this is suffer well and be holy because God is holy. But he's also judge. God will judge us. That's something we can't forget in our age that tends to have a little bit more of a mushy, sentimental view of the character of God. His wrath and his judgment is present. But he keeps going. This is a long sentence. Let's keep going in the sentence and we'll stop and see if you, if you have any questions. So conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed. Now before we go further, ransomed is in this culture at this time. Typically, a ransom was, say, for example, a slave. If somebody paid a certain amount of money, they could ransom for the freedom of this slave. So ransom was typically a financial money exchange kind of endeavor. But that's not what they mean here. What is he saying here? He's saying that you were ransomed, excuse me, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Notice, what word did he just use here that's interesting that he's used before? Uh, yes, he did. You're right. 
that you what? That you what from your forefathers? You inherited. Now, one of the things when you're studying the book is you want to look for comparing and contrasting and words that are repeated. When we're first told about inheritance, what are we told about? The unfading, undefiled inheritance of what? In heaven, right? Glorification. So that's what we have because Jesus is risen from the grave. Now here he's saying, you, uh, he goes, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So there was futile, sinful ways being passed on that they would have inherited. This was their natural course had they not become followers of Jesus and become a part of his chosen people. So Peter's comparing and contrasting the futile inheritance generation after generation with saying, no, remember, you have inherited something even greater from God because of the resurrection of Jesus. So he's making a contrast to them, reminding them of what would have come, but now they have a different inheritance. So when that word pops up again, you want to pause and ask why. So inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Now, has Peter talked about silver or gold before? He has, right? Twice. Remember the first time he's comparing and contrasting things that are temporary and that can fade like gold and things like heaven, eternity with more value. So he brings up gold a second time. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now again, now what is Peter bringing in that we've talked about a few times? He's bringing in what? What kind of imagery is he bringing in? He's bringing Old Testament. It's all over this book. It's all over this book. So why do they have this inheritance? What does it say? He says, um, boy, why did this mess up? There we go. With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As you know in the Old Testament, for some of the sacrifices, in particular the Passover, what kind of lamb do they have to have? Perfect is exactly right in every fashion. And of course, that's why Jesus was sinless. He's the Passover lamb. Okay, so Peter's just bringing in this Old Testament imagery to make sure we don't miss and understand who Jesus is. Now, we can keep going. Let me pause. Any questions about this text so far? Something that was said, something that wasn't said, maybe something not, not clear. Yeah. I think it could be. Peter doesn't talk about that further in this context, so it's possible and it fits with that, that God is going to judge us impartially based on our deeds. So I'd say that's possible, but I don't see, as far as I can recall, anything in the rest of 1 Peter that really expands that. So possible, but I'm not sure that we can fully make that connection, though you may be right. Other questions? Yes.
I do, yeah. So I, I think my comment is more it can't be reduced down to the way we tend to see fear just in that sense, like, ooh, I'm scared. But there is a sense where we have a holy, uh, I don't like the word scared, but that sense of fear, God, I guess I think of C.S. Lewis saying, you know, the famous statement about a lion. Yeah, he's, what is the famous thing? He's good, but he's not tame, something to that effect. Like you kind of have a fear of a lion that could incorporate that element, but it's so much more when it comes to God. It's so much bigger than that. Now, I agree with you. When it says the exile, I think you're right. He's making a comparison to the wilderness where they have the inheritance of the promised land coming. They're not there yet, but they're promised it, and they're in the exile waiting for it. I think Peter's saying the same thing. He's saying you are in the exile, a kind of wilderness. You have the promise, not just of the promised land, you have the promise of eternal life in heaven with God. So Peter is certainly making that connection that you drew out. Yes, good, good, well said. Yeah, one more, go. Say that again. What is reverence? I think off the top of my head, it would be a sense of holiness and respect towards something that is sacred, reverence. Like if you walk in a church, there's kind of a sense of reverence. Like, wow, this is, this is kind of holy ground. This is not out, you know, somewhere else. Like a basketball court, reverence. Okay, I'm kidding. Don't take it too far. I'm kidding. Mostly. I love the game of basketball. But I think it's a sense of awe and respect at something in particular that's holy because it has a special place, so to speak. Um, we're going to get to submission to governing authorities, so hang on there. I don't think Peter's going to say reverence. He's going to say honor. So hold that thought. We'll get there. But I like what you're thinking. You're anticipating where Peter is going. All right, let's keep going. Verse 18. Uh, actually, verse 20, like I said, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, Peter keeps going with these clauses, so we'll stop right there. Foreknown doesn't just mean he had knowledge ahead of time. It carries a sense of foreplanning, foreordination, and predestination. Now, people often say, do you believe in predestination? I'm like, it's in the Bible. You can't get outside of it. Now, of course, this is where Calvinists and Molinists and Arminianists will differ over how to wed God's sovereignty with human free will. Okay? We won't enter into that debate right here for obvious reasons. But I think all sides would agree that this isn't just God the Father knowing what's going to happen with Jesus. But this was a part of the plan from before the world came into existence. That's the key point for the 30,000-foot view. They want to make sure we don't miss. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. What does this tell us about what Peter thinks about the times he's living in? He actually thinks we're living in the last times. Now, what's interesting about this is if you go back to the Old Testament, there was this sense that the day of the Lord is near. It could come at any moment, and it could be 800 years. Seriously, there's always this tension. 
that God is coming. It's near. Be aware. And then 800 years pass. And then 400 years pass. It's not false prophecy. It's the kind of tension that God has always been living through the Old Testament. So in a sense, we're in the last days. And we can err on saying, oh, it would never happen in our time. Or we can also err on saying it's tomorrow and reading too much into the news about exactly what God is doing and how. Again, not going to enter into the debate of prophecy. But clearly, Peter understands himself and the church entering into what he calls the last days. Yet it could be 800 years before Christ returns. And in his case, it was at least 2,000 years. We know that. Who uh, was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. Now, let me pause for a second. This is so interesting when I was reading through this. Who does it say rose Jesus from the dead? God did. Can someone, someone have your Bible so you can read to me John 2.19 quickly? Turn to John 2.19. 1 Peter, 2 Peter, John. No, I'm kidding. Who's got, is any, somebody looking it up just to make sure we're not staring at each other awkward? You got it? Read it nice and loud. John 2.19. And then I want to ask you what this tells us when you read this in light of the passage we just read in Peter. Go ahead. Did you hear that? He's debating with the religious leaders. He answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days who will raise it up? I will raise it up. So Jesus says, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. In this passage, what does it say? It says, God raised Jesus from the dead. Where does it say that? Is there a pa- Give me a specific verse. If you think of it, if you find it, I, I, that would only make my broader case here. Not, not one jumps to my mind. If it does, that would be amazing. Go. It says what? Boom. Good job. Where do you go to college? I, I just had this sense, man. Good Bible teaching. Now, notice what this tells us. Remember, we started First Peter saying it doesn't give us a verse that defines the Trinity. But we see the three roles placed synonymously together on the same level, so to speak. Now Jesus raised himself. God, in this sense, it seems God the Father and the Holy Spirit raises him. That's really interesting, isn't it? Jesus is divine. He is God. But he's a distinct person from the Father. And he's distinct from the Holy Spirit. So fascinating when you kind of make these connections, isn't it? Uh, so who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Again, what word keeps popping up in 1 Peter? Hope, hope, hope. This is a book about hope. Now he's already said this. We're still only in the first few verses in this book. What's our hope rooted in again? That Jesus has risen from the dead. And Peter who wrote this book saw him multiple times in the flesh. That's worth sinking in, isn't it? This isn't a story from someone who has passed on and passed on to somebody else, and we heard from Uncle Joe who heard from this person. Peter writes, he says, we have hope. Jesus has risen from the dead. And Peter saw him, and I think we have good reason to believe he went to his grave and died because of this conviction. 
we have a solid hope because Jesus has risen from the grave. Then he keeps going. It says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Now again, what terminology is Peter using here? We got to pause and make sure we understand. Okay, we do see Old Testament references, but purified your what? Your souls. So again, he's not just talking about your immaterial self. In this sense, he's talking about your character and who you are. It's bigger than that. Okay, that's why word studies can only take us so far. You've got to look in the context. And again, Christianly, we are embodied souls. We are body and soul. So Paul writes in, first, in uh, Romans, he says, offer your bodies to the Lord. And he says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is Romans 12 and Romans 6. A part of offering your body is offering yourself. So Peter's not saying we're just these immaterial souls trapped in a body. He's just using soul terminology to talk about how we purify ourselves as human beings before the Lord. Okay? Uh, keep going. It says, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere... Now, this is interesting. This is where sometimes the Greek is important and it's lost in English. It says... Uh, Oops, speaking of lost, find my place here. Here it is. Uh, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. Any guesses what that word is in Greek? And you're like, why do I guess the Greek? Well, there's any, good job. What was it? Phileo, which means what? It, well, it means brotherly love. That's, <laughs> I did my, set myself up for that. It tends to mean kind of a friendship, sometimes affectionate brotherly love. There's multiple words for love in Greek that if you just write love in English, you'll miss the nuance. But then notice what it says next. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Take a wild guess what the word for love is there. Agape. That's right. Which is the most self-sacrificial, other-oriented kinds of love. So Peter is saying we are to phileo one another and agape one another. Affection, brotherly love, and sacrifice that we ultimately see modeled in Jesus. Now, by the way, why is it so important that we love one another? Notice he doesn't say love your neighbors. He's talking about love within the church. Why is that so important? Okay, now that, that is our motivation for it, right? So our motivation to love one another is because Christ first loved us. Good. But why is it so important that we practice this? Exactly. Where Peter is heading very soon is we love one another because the world is going to judge God by the love we have or do not have for one another. They will know you by your, by your love. So it's interesting. It's almost like he's saying here, I'm first concerned with the bride of Christ. Be holy. Be the church. And when we love one another as the chosen people, we can be a light to the world the way Israel was meant to be a light to the world in the Old Testament. Peter keeps bringing this full circle. Now there's a whole talk that could be given on this, but I've been thinking so much lately about unity and the lack thereof within the church, and what divides us. 
Now, here's my basic philosophy, and this could, I mean, this could open up a can of worms, is I want to divide on, we should divide on issues tied to the gospel for sure. Paul does in Galatians 1. He says, you are following a false gospel. Let me repeat it again. Accursed are those who follow false gospel. For sure. But we should have as much unity as possible on secondary issues without downplaying the importance of secondary issues for the life of the church. So the role of women in the church, that's really important. You kind of can't function without making a decision as a church and landing somewhere, right? By practice, you have to. Age of the earth, Calvinism versus Arminianism. What I find is we lead with finding differences rather than lead with finding what we have in common. Just this week, I was reading a sociological study, and he made this point that was worth thinking about. He said, people of different political systems tend to divide based on their political differences rather than unite based on their common faith. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Then it raises a million questions. I get that. But one of Satan's core strategies is to divide. So over and over again, we see in the scriptures, the entire book of Ephesians is about our unity as a body of Christ. We love one another because the world is going to judge our God by whether or not we love one another. And that is manifest so often in unity. In a conversation with a friend this morning, I said, I don't, it doesn't bother me when people criticize my ideas and think I'm wrong. I said, that's fine. What bothers me is the spirit in which they do it. The spirit in which we treat other people within the body of Christ who differ on certain issues is a lack of loving one another. And I don't think as a whole we do a great job at this. Maybe that's an understatement uh, in the church today. But Peter made it clear we are to love one another with phileo and with agape love. Then he says, keeps going, same sentence. Uh, verse 23, since you have been born again, how many times have we heard that? So far that's at least twice, right? At least twice. A reference at least indirectly to John 3, you must be born through the Spirit. Okay, he's using this language, you must be born again. Since, but notice what he says, since you have been born again, you notice what he's saying about them? He's not saying you should be. He's saying what? You have been. This is a declarative statement. Because you have been born again, this is how you should live. Peter's declaring something true about them. He says, since you have been born again, and notice what he repeats, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. is that powerful? Again, not perishable, not gold, not the present, eternal, the kingdom, imperishable. And then he gives a quote again from the Old Testament. In this case, he's in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. So in what sense is flesh like grass? It's temporary, it grows, and it fades away but also like a flower, it's beautiful. He says, the grass withers and the flower falls, 
but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, why would that be so important for them to hear at this moment? Anybody really fast? Why would they need to hear? Grass fades, flesh fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Anybody? They, they, may, they, are, they are certainly suffering. They might die for their faith. But think about who's in charge at that time. Who's in charge over the land they live in? Rome. There's ever been an empire that you were living in, it feels permanent and imperishable and destructible. It would be the Roman Empire. And even the Roman Empire faded. It was perishable. It was like gold. That's why they needed to hear this promise you have in heaven and the word of God, that will never fade. That's eternal, more eternal. And can you imagine how difficult that would be to believe when you look out and you see the power of the Roman Empire? That's where faith would come in, wouldn't it? No, the word of God is going to outlast this, and it has, which is why J.P. Moreland said, we call our dogs Caesar and our kids Peter and Paul. Uh, that was a great line. Uh, the end of chapter one, it says, and this is the good news that was preached to you. Let's shift into chapter two. We got a few minutes here. He says, so, now when you hear so, what do you think of? What's happening? There's, there's what? Okay, it's like a therefore, right? So if you start off and you say, so put away all malice, to really understand why they should put away malice, what do you have to understand? What comes before? And what came before? God is holy. God is going to judge. Love one another. Love one another with a brotherly love. So, then he goes into chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, here's what's interesting about this as I was reading this. He gives four things. Malice is when it's, it's kind of to wrongly physically harm somebody. That's malice, physically harm. Deceit, of course, is to lie and to fool. Hypocrisy is to pretend you're something that you're not. And envy is a kind of jealousy. So if he's saying don't do these, then if we want to know what it means to love, what do we need to do? The opposite. Who said that? Uh, uh, you're killing it, man. A plus. Good job. That's exactly right. So when I slow down and read this, I'm like, wait a minute. He's saying don't. So put away all malice rather than intentionally harming people physically. Care for their physical needs. Don't deceive people. Speak the truth. Don't be hypocrites. Rather have integrity in who you are. And integrity is to be whole, that you present who you are. And instead of slandering others, right, speak words that are positive, that lift and build up. Put those negative things away. Do these positive, he says. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. Now, do we have in other passages in the Bible references to like spiritual milk. Hebrews 5, good. And who else talks about spiritual milk contrasting with food? 
Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's right. When I first read this, I instantly went to those passages, and I read a couple more times and realized he's making a different point. What Paul is saying is that newborns get want they need spiritual milk, but as you get older, you should transition into solid food. So if you're older, you shouldn't be living on spiritual milk, so to speak, for obvious reasons. Peter's actually making a different point here. If you read it closely, what does he say? He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Do infants, if we have any moms in the houses or dads who've had infants, you get woken up in the middle of the night and this child is just hungry and yearning for food, right? Remember when I was a kid, my wife was like understanding these different cries. I'm like, what do you mean a different cry? She's like, that's a cry of pain. That's a cry of hunger. I'm like, really? Like, wow. And then I learned to discern cries better than I did. There's a certain cry that's like, I'm hungry. And this child is just yearning for spiritual milk. Peter's using this as a good. He's saying we should imitate this. We should have the same desire, the same yearning for spiritual milk that an infant has. Okay, how so? Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, what kind of salvation is he talking about? Sanctification, good. He's not saying earning your salvation. What happens when you yearn for the word of God? And you read it because it's eternal, starts to change your life, and you grow in your sanctification, in your salvation. Okay, excellent. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's that a reference to? Psalms, exactly. One of the most famous Psalms where it says taste, you know, and taste and what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. How does he phrase it right here? He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So again, this Old Testament imagery is coming back. Let's look at this uh, last section together. We'll, we'll wrap up. Verse 4. As you come to him, and who is him, by the way? Who is him? Jesus. Now, by the way, you notice something here. So come and see that the Lord is good. In the Old Testament, who was the Lord? It was God. How is Peter using come and taste and see that the Lord is good? Jesus, because Jesus is God. See, Peter doesn't explicitly give us these verses that tell us explicitly Jesus is God. But if you read the verse clearly, the, the book clearly, it's Trinitarian and it's Christological because that's who Peter believed that Jesus was. So verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, do you notice the, the comparison that, Jesus make, that uh, Peter's making here? What does he say? He says, you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but God chosen and precious. So just as Jesus was a living stone, chosen by God and rejected, now what does Peter say? He says, now you are a kind of living stone, rejected by people, but chosen by God. So he's taking the example of Jesus and saying, as a church, we are to imitate his example. That's his point. And then he says, uh, 
in sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, what is the spiritual house being contrasted with? What's the contrast? The spiritual house with what? Uh, it could be an earthly house. Now, a sandcastle, Jesus made that one. Good. That was in Matthew 7, I think it was, in the Sermon on the Mount. That's not the point he's making here. Spiritual house is being contrasted with what in the Old Testament? The temple. Good. Do you see how the temple? We talk about our body is the temple of the Lord. Now he's saying the church, how we live, is precious. What was precious in the temple, by the way? It was, well, holy of holies, exactly. But what was precious from an earthly standard in the temple? That gold. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I calculated one time with my high school students how much gold was in Solomon's temple and how much it was worth today, and I don't remember the number. And it's probably worth less because of inflation, but I digress. <laughs> Unless gold's done pretty well, hasn't it, amidst inflation? I don't even know. Someone takes care of that for me. But the point is the amount of the gold was incredible. Incredible. It was amazing. What's more valuable, the temple or the people of God? You know the answer to this. So basically what he's saying is this temple was beautiful. And like when Queen of Sheba saw the wealth that Solomon had, she just sends more wealth and is in awe of this. What is Peter saying? He's saying you are a spiritual house. You are precious. You are to serve the same function that the tabernacle and the temple did, but even more precious because these things aren't temporary. They're eternal. They can't perish. They're imperishable. They can't be defiled. They're undefiled. That's the contrast he's making and how important it is we as a church love one another and have unity. And he says to be uh, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, again, reference to the Old Testament, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what Peter doesn't do is he doesn't tell us what those spiritual sacrifices are. He doesn't fill in the blank and tell us, but you see, I know, I'm, I'm like, ah, oh, come on, Peter, fill in the blank for us. But you see the contrast that he's making. In the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Now we have a spiritual kind of sacrifice. So now he's basically saying these are God's chosen people to represent him the world. You Christians and you and me, we are God's chosen people. We are his elect. And just in the Old Testament, they offered animal sacrifices. We offer spiritual sacrifices. Why? To show the world that God is holy and that God is good. That's the whole purpose of it to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Again, he quotes the Old Testament. And in this passage, he quotes Isaiah 28. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Paul made a similar point, did he? He said the resurrection of Jesus is foolishness 
it's in a stumbling block to people, but it's at the root of our faith. Peter's making a similar point here. And then he says, they stumble, this is uh, the end of verse eight, they stumble because they did not, I'm sorry, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are, and just li- as we read this, think about how the Old Testament imagery just runs through this example of Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, notice the term beloved. You see this? He calls them children. Beloved. You see this heart if you slow down. You see this heart of Peter coming through. He so wants to understand how important this. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, again, your character, against who you are. And notice just really quickly, we're almost done with this part. He calls them sojourners and exiles. There's always this tension between how much are we in the world, but not of the world. That's a huge question about the intersection of culture and our faith. And we could go into that if you want to when we get to more Q&A. But certainly there's a sense where this is not our ultimate true home. We are sojourners. We're just passing through. Verse 12, last verse we'll look at. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So why be honorable when you're suffering? Why be holy? Why love one another? Well, Peter says a few reasons. The main reason is you should be holy because what? Because God is holy. But second, God is actually going to judge. God is going to judge us. We should have a healthy fear of the Lord. Third, when we suffer, it burns away the dross and reveals genuine faith. Now, Peter introduces a fourth, is that we act honorably and conduct ourselves in a certain fashion. Why? To draw other people to the faith. That's why Peter says we should suffer well. We got to wrap up in, in a couple minutes. But any questions, something from this section that jumped out, something that maybe didn't make sense, a connection, uh, something they didn't cover, a question that maybe you brought from this section? Anybody? Yeah, go ahead. So, as I understand it, he's referencing back to Isaiah. 
right? So Peter comments on this passage from Isaiah that says, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, clearly during the time of Isaiah, a lot of the scriptures had not even been written yet. Most of it had not. So I think it's a reference to the scriptures that had been written, but I think it's bigger than that. It would include even future scriptures that would be. God's promises, God's claims are the word of God. So when he says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you, I think part of Peter, what Peter is saying is Isaiah reveals the word, but now that Jesus is here, we actually understand that it's more than Isaiah may have even understood he was proclaiming because God has come down in the flesh. That's why early he talks about even angels marveling at these things. He talks about the prophets prophesying these things. They don't do it explicitly, but they hint at it in spirit, fully revealed in the person of Jesus. So I think there's a reason this quote comes right after a passage in Isaiah because it incorporates that. But now the good news in particular is what he's just been talking about, that you have eternal life, that we have salvation, that this is imperishable, it's unfading. That is the good news that has been preached to them. So it might be more than that when we go to John and other places, but in the book of Peter, it seems like that's more of what he's focusing on here, at least so far in this book. It's a great question. Any last quick question as we wrap up? That was an excellent question thoughtful question from just reading carefully and thinking about it. So I'm going to start off tomorrow. I hope you can come back and ask you if you found 15 minutes to read 1 Peter, something that just jumped out to you. Maybe you see something repeated. Maybe Peter says something that it's the first time you've heard it. Maybe it's something you're like, whoa, I don't even understand this, but this is interesting. So hopefully you can find 15 minutes Read the book of First Peter before tomorrow night and then just have some kind of insightful nugget or thought you can share for the group and then we'll pick up where we left off. All right, good discussion tonight.